0: professing Christians of various denominations in all sorts of time zones, uh, various countries and continents of God's earth, people are gathering, meeting for public worship like we are. Some of them are large gatherings, uh, some of them are relatively small gatherings. But that's been happening, as you well know, for a long time, but not for the entire duration of the earth's existence. It started in the first century, first day meetings, by people professing the name of Jesus as God's Christ or anointed servant and savior of sinners. And the reason why they've done that since then on the main is because of his resurrection on the first day. And this is why Christians, since the Apostle John uh, wrote the book of Revelation, actually before that, called that day the Lord's Day, because when John uses that phrase in Revelation 1.10, he doesn't say, oh, by the way, I mean this by that. He assumes his audience knew it, just like Paul with the phrase, Lord's Supper. He doesn't have to define what it means in 1 Corinthians 10. He just uses it because it was already in use and understood before he wrote the letter. So the Lord's Day is the first day of the week, Sunday. Um, and we're here gathered, and as you know, if you've been here for some time, we're considering the fourth commandment, and I'm not sure how many sermons I've done. I think I know how many more I'm going to do. I won't tell you till we get there, because a lot of times it doesn't happen that way. But today we're going to look at Jesus on the Sabbath from a passage in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you'd like to turn there, it's Matthew chapter 12, I'll be reading and uh, giving an overview of the first 14 verses. Matthew chapter 12, the first 14 verses. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. So this would be the seventh day of the week at the time. And his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. How would you like to be one of those Pharisees? Knowing what you know now, Jesus, you're wrong. Your disciples are in sin, and you are too. That's basically what they're saying. They're claiming to have a proper interpretation of the law of God at the time, and they're rebuking the incarnate Son of God for him and his disciples doing something. But he said to them, Have you not read? You see what Jesus does here? Have you not read? What's he referring to? The, the newspaper? Uh, No, what we call the Old Testament, right? Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God and that they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, The priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? So he uses two examples from the Old Testament in a a kind of an odd way, because he uses their kind of language. Oh, they're breaking the Sabbath back there in the Old Testament too, but they're never indicted for breaking it. So it seems like they have a different understanding. Well, it doesn't seem like. They obviously have a different understanding of the Old Testament. Jesus is justifying the actions of his his disciples, not merely because he's the incarnate Lord and he's changing the law. He's justifying their actions based on the Old Testament itself. But I say to you, that something greater than the temple is here. Interesting. But if you had not known, but if you had known what this means, he's going to the Old Testament again, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. They're not guilty. They're innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Departing from there, he went into their synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, what man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it? and lift it out how much more valuable then is a man than a sheep so so then it is lawful to do good on the sabbath he doesn't say it is now lawful because i'm saying it to do good on the sabbath he says it is therefore already lawful basically to do good on the Sabbath And he said to the man, "Stretch out your hand." He stretched it out, and it was restored to normal, like the other, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. That's the end of our reading. Now, if you've read the New Testament, you know that Jesus addresses the issue of the Sabbath in many. Uh, passages. We're going to look at another one next week in Mark chapter 2. He does it in Luke 6, here in Matthew 12, Mark 2, and uh, very many other places. And one of the big reasons why he does that is because of the added uh, laws that the tradition of teachers accumulated over time up until Jesus' day. I, don't, I, I forgot the number, but it's hundreds of added laws to the Old Testament, and it happened after their exile and then their return. Um, it happened not in the Old Testament itself. It happened as, between the Testament, Jews looked back on the Old Testament and tried to make practical applications. I think that's probably why my seminary friend had to go change the TV on Saturdays for the Jewish neighbor he had, probably because all these added things. And Jesus, so Jesus is confronting that. Jesus' teaching is not in opposition to the Old Testament. It's in opposition to Pharisaic additions to the Old Testament, okay? So uh, uh, so I think that's imp- very important to see. And there's a, there's a really readable and excellent sesh, section in that book by Bruce Ray, celebrating the Sabbath on the back table, where he deals, deals with that. And once you understand that, I think it helps understand what's going on here. Okay, So let's look at the context and flow of this narration here, this narrative in Matthew 12. Notice that we're told in verse 1, we're told that Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, not just his disciples, okay? Jesus was doing this. And his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. These, the Pharisees replied, this is verse 2, look, behold, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath, okay? So in their thinking, it is unlawful. It is a violation of not man's law. Their thinking is, you're violating God's law. Jesus, in response, offers two examples from God's law, from the Old Testament, okay? First one in verse 5, David, and the, in verse 3, David and those who were with him, and the second one, the priests in the temple, Matthew twelve 5. We're not going to go back there and look at all this. We're just going to trust that Jesus got the Old Testament right, aren't we? Who wants to say, you know what, Jesus, he misinterpreted the Old Testament. Wow. Please don't go that direction, okay? We're going to assume our Lord knew the intent of the Old Testament and given the circumstances he was living in, picked these two examples because he was he was right? And he was submitting himself, as well, to the law of God. Jesus is referring to previous revelation to justify present actions. The Pharisees are also referring to previous revelation, at least in their thinking, to not verify present actions, but to accuse. So, who do you think is going to be right when they're interpreting the Old Testament? Uh, I think our Lord's going to be right. Matter of fact, I've said this before. The reason you're here is because you believe Jesus got the Old Testament right. Matter of fact, that's why churches exist, because people believe Jesus got the Old Testament right. Concerning the priests, he says... Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? The Pharisees' assumptions implied that whatever the priests were doing, it was a violation of the Sabbath, and that David and Christ's disciples were also profaning the Sabbath. I don't see how they could have got around that. But Jesus says the priests, remember that in verse 5, are blameless. That's a huge claim. They're blameless. Then he quotes Hosea 6.6. 6. If you have the New American Standard, it has it capitalized. He says, but if you had known what this means, isn't that Interesting. He doesn't say, but if you had known that the Old Testament says, he he assumes they got knowledge of the Old Testament. They don't know what it means. If you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. Now, that's very interesting because does God in the Old Testament require sacrifices? And the answer is yes. Yes. But he says here, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. Jesus says, if you knew what that meant, does it mean the Old Testament doesn't require sacrifices? Well, it can't mean that because it does. It has to mean something else. Is it a contradiction? I don't think so. I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. If you knew what that meant, you would not have condemned the guiltless. I think the best way to understand this is something like this. There are moral laws that, are, that creatures, created in the image of God, that's us, are always responsible to obey, never, no matter the circumstances. There are positive laws, laws added to it, that are given in certain circumstances under certain conditions. And when they seem to conflict in a difficult situation, we're always to pick the moral laws. That's why we're to do good to men and not say, well, it's the Sabbath, somebody got in a car crash, I can't help them. We're to say, I'm going to have compassion on somebody who's in need given the circumstances, and I'm going to use the means to get them help. So it's something like that. But both references, uh, David and the priests, are our previous revelation. Jesus is dipping into the Old Testament to justify his actions and his disciples' actions as blameless and guiltless. And he does that by referencing the Old Testament. So again, I'm going to take Jesus' interpretation of the Old Testament over the Pharisees. Now in that next section that we read, starting in verse 10, um, or in verse 10, it says this. He asks a question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, notice the conclusion in verse 12. Therefore, it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath. He doesn't say that. He says, it is lawful to do good. Is healing a good thing? The assumption is yes. But he calls it a good thing. Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now, clearly, this teaches that healing on the Sabbath was lawful, as was the preserving of the life of sheep. It didn't become lawful it was already lawful. Jesus didn't make new things lawful that were unlawful before. Whatever Jesus is doing, healing, giving the illustration about the sheep, the disciples picking grain, it was already lawful. Works of mercy were already lawful. Now the Pharisees had drawn conclusions from the Old Testament that basically said, that's unlawful. You can't help sheep, you can't heal people, you can't click a button or whatever. His disciples ate because eating is necessary to sustain human life and they were in a, under a circumstance where it was necessary for them to sustain their life the way they did. So what they did was not a violation of God's law. All of these actions, we have to say, according to Christ, were lawful, and they were therefore blameless, and they were therefore guiltless according to the standing law of God that had already been revealed to them. So... You see what's happening here. This is a conflict between the Pharisees' understanding of the Old Testament and our Lord's. Again, who are you going to side with? Uh, I hope you're going to side with, with our, our Lord. And then we have to say this as well. I've already said it. I think I'm going to say it again, though. They did not become lawful, these actions, due to his pronouncement. Right? They were already lawful before he announced that they were guilty, guiltless, and blameless. Does Jesus calling them guiltless and blameless make them guiltless or blameless? Or were they already guiltless and blameless according to the law of God? They were already guiltless and blameless, right? Jesus was correcting faulty thinking about the Sabbath by consulting prior revelation, right? That's what he's doing, David and the priests, David and those who were with him. And he's interpreting prior revelation, the Old Testament, and applying it correctly. They were doing interpretation and application, but not correctly. Jesus did interpretation, and application correctly. Jesus was submitting himself to the Word of God written, and he did it properly. Matter of fact, um, this is a freebie, it's not in the notes. Did Jesus' interpretation of Scripture constitute a sort of righteousness In other words, have you ever interpreted Scripture wrongly, like way bad? Like you would even say, man, I had sinful ideas about what's wrong, violated God's law about, uh, about his own word. I took his, word, his name in vain, didn't realize it. And is that a sin? I think you would say, well, yeah. Jesus never did that, right? So even his interpretation of Scripture was for us and for our salvation, Anyway, that's a thing on the side. He was submitting himself to the word of God written. He was interpreting and applying the word of God written to a situation. The school of the Pharisees, however, had added laws to God's law. They got the, they got the law of God wrong, and Jesus is correcting them. Now, if that is the proper grid to understand basically what's going on there, go read Luke 6, read Matthew 2, or Mark 2. It's the same thing. They're trying to say, Jesus, you are violating the law of God with reference to the fourth commandment. And his pushback is, no, I'm not. His pushback is not, it's okay, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I can do whatever I want. His his comeback is, I am not breaking the law. My disciples are not breaking the law. Now, a typical response to this passage goes like this. Someone might want to offer Matthew 12 as an example of Jesus uh, doing away with the Sabbath in all senses. People have understood it this way. This view claims that Jesus, uh, or some who hold this view, claim that Jesus advocates Sabbath breaking, thereby proving that he was doing away with it. Now, I have a friend who was in a seminary. It wasn't a seminary; it was a Bible college, and the professor taught that Jesus broke the Sabbath. And this is probably one of the passages. He, yeah, that's what you, you. You really want to? You want to go that way? Uh, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, and He violated it. He broke it. You want to go that way? I don't want to go that way myself. I hope you don't want to go that way. The sinless son of God assumed human nature and violated the law of God. That just doesn't, that's not going to sell. At least it shouldn't sell. Uh, But there are reputable, on other grounds, scholars in our own day who hold a view like that. So... We'd have to ask the question. So you're saying that Jesus advocating advocated Sabbath breaking during his earthly ministry. He allowed his disciples to v- break the fourth commandment, and he himself broke the fourth commandment. That that's what you're saying. And if people say yes, and we ask the question, why do you say that? We get a lot of different answers. Uh, but I'll I'll tell you, it's because you haven't really thought through all the, the entirety of the written word of God. It can't be that Jesus violated the law of God. The answer has to be something else. Somebody else has to be doing something wrong, not our Lord and his disciples, at least in this case. The disciples did wrong things a lot, by the way. But notice, our Lord... justifies works of necessity and mercy in this, in this passage. Necessity, sustaining life, putting food in their belly. Mercy, both healing and the illustration of tending to a sheep in the ditch. And he concludes, Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, so, mercy, necessity, at least those two principles are clear, I think, in our, in our, in our text. The, so, the supposed violation of the Sabbath in this passage is actually an upholding of the law of God in accordance with Old Testament revelation. This is very important uh, to get. So, Jesus never advocated Sabbath-breaking during his earthly ministry. His teaching and his actions reflect then-existing Sabbath law. Now, those who differ uh, offer this objection. Those who offer this objection, um, the objection is Jesus did advocate Sabbath-breaking to show that he was Lord over the law and was exercising his lordship in establishing new law or something like that. So those who offer this objection may claim that when Jesus says, this is verse 6, but I say to you that something greater than the temple is here and for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, verse 8, some might claim he is claiming here authority to abolish the Sabbath as he has abolished the temple. That is an argument people use. He said, look, I'm Lord, I can do what I want. I'm doing it with the temple, I'm going to do it with the Sabbath. Temple's gone, Sabbath's gone. Now, if you've read the Bible, and if you've sat under my preaching long enough, you know that the temple's not gone, and yet it is gone. Right? You know that the priesthood's gone, but it's not gone. You know that sacrifices are gone, but they're not gone. and I'm going to say this too, you know, the Sabbath's gone, but it's not gone. How can you say those thing, both those things at once? Well, because when the Son of God comes, that to which those things pointed, it, um, our Lord, doesn't do away with everything, but it brings those things to a, a redemptive... Um, Fulfillment, let's say. Those things pointed to both Christ and his people and his kingdom and his church, his temple, his body. And since he has come and instituted his church in a formal way, those things have fulfilled their purposes. But they don't go away. Now we look at them and go, oh, we learn more from them. But we still have priests, temple, sacrifice, uh, Sabbath. It's all transformed, though. Remember last week? The prophets prophesy a Sabbath during the inaugurated days of the New Covenant. The prophets teach the, the, the cessation of ancient Israel's Sabbaths. Both things are true in the Old Testament. One thing's gone, but this principle of sabbath is still there the ancient shadows when the substance come they're they're they 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 do not they no longer function the, the way they used to function that's why it would be wrong to have animal sacrifices and think that this is what god is requiring us to do or a physical temple in jerusalem even in the so-called future millennium it's like what Animal sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem point forward to the first coming of Christ. If Christ has come, they can't ever be reenacted in order to look forward to the coming of Christ because he already came. They're always forward-looking, at least until he comes. So you can't, after the fact, reenact them and call them forward-looking, because he has already come. Anyway. So there's objections. Can we say that, okay, when the Lord says, um, the Lord says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, can we say, therefore, he has authority to condition it, the fourth commandment, however he wants to, um, in virtue of his death, resurrection, and current session? I want to say yes. I I think that the fourth commandment is going to take on, in its application, it's going to take on elements that are conditioned by the redemptive historical circumstances brought in by our Lord. Remember the the application of the second commandment? Is the second commandment, are we required to worship God the way he requires us in his word? Yes. Is the public worship of God the same before the cross and resurrection of Christ as it is after? No. What conditions the change? Jesus. Fourth commandment is going to be the same way. Could we say that Christ abolished the temple? He says something greater than the temple is here. What do you think he's referring to? He's referring to himself. But if you've read the Bible, you know also in the Gospel of John, destroy this temple, Jesus said, and in three days I'll raise it up. And then you remember the pushback. It took 46 years to build this temple, this second temple, the temple that was then existing. It took 46 years to build it. And you're going you're gonna to raise it up and destroy, it's going to be destroyed and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking to the temple of his body. Remember that? Something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the physical temple is here. And I think he's referring, uh, obviously, to himself. Now, what does he mean in these two statements? I say to you that something greater than the temple is here Verse 6, and the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What does he mean? Those are, those are huge statements. Something greater than the temple is here. He's used it before. Something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. In both those cases, what was the Lord referring to? Himself. Um, but he connects himself both with Jonah, Solomon, and temple. Old Testament realities, right? So those must somehow, some way, point to him and his work, the temple as well. What does this mean? I say to you that something greater than the temple is here, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Those, thats verses six and eight. What do those things, those statements mean? Jesus says the same uh, in Matthew two, uh, Mark two twenty-eight as well. Now I'm going to read a kind of a long quote here by a 19th-century Scottish Presbyterian. Patrick Fairbairn, and it doesn't matter who said it, it matters if he's right, and I think he's right. And he's reflective of uh, mainstream, um, we would say reformed thought on this issue. Now the first part of it is hard to understand, and if you don't get it, that's fine. I'll tell you when the, the meat comes. Okay, So this is like the potato part at the beginning. It's good, it's but it's kind of tough sometimes, especially if you don't take the skin off or the dirt off of it. But once it gets going, it picks up steam. Listen to what he's, he's explaining, but these words. But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here, Matthew 12, 6, in conjunction with, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, Matthew 12, 8. Putting those two things together, what do these assertions by our Lord mean? He says, the temple he had said... Previously, has claims of service which it was no proper desecration of the Sabbath, but the reverse to satisfy. I told you it was hard to understand. What in the world is he talking about? I think he's talking about uh, the priests and, and, and David and his companions. That whatever they were doing, Jesus had already told us they're guiltless, they're blameless. And a greater than the temple was there. Here here is when the, the, the fillet. Here's the fillet. This is why I quoted this right here. The temple yields to Christ. The Sabbath yields to the temple. Therefore, the Sabbath yields to Christ. So the sentiment is expressed by another man. But yields, it must be observed... In both cases alike, only for the performance of works not antagonistic to its nature. He is Lord of the Sabbath and, as such, has a right to order everything concerning it so as to make it, in the fullest sense, a day of blessing for man. A right, therefore, if he should see fit, to transfer its observance from the last day of the week to the first that it might be associated with the consummation of his redemptive work and to make it in accordance with the impulsive life and energy thereby brought in more than in the past a day of active and hallowed employment for the good of men. A 19th-century Scottish Presbyterian, so it's difficult, but at least one person got it because I heard some holy moans over there. See what he's saying? He says the fourth commandment, in its application, this side of the cross and resurrection of Christ, is going to take on characteristics that point us back to Christ and the consummation of His work. It's going to take on, like the second commandment does, unique Christian features, because the shadows. That pointed forward to the substance have served their purpose. Just as the temple yields to Christ and is transformed to fit the redemptive historical circumstances brought in by his sufferings and glory, right? The church is now the temple of God. So just as the temple is transformed to fit fulfillment conditions brought in by our Lord, just as the temple is transformed, so the Sabbath yields to Christ and is transformed to fit the same historical, redemptive historical circumstances. We live in the age of fulfillment, the side of the incarnation, sufferings, and glory of Christ. The types and shadows of the Old Testament have functioned, in their typological and shadowy uh, manner, they have served their purpose, the substance that to which those pointed to has come, ultimately in Christ. But the moral law doesn't go. Public worship doesn't go. Um, uh, The seven-day week doesn't go. Things are still here, but the shadowy purpose of those things has found its terminus, its, its uh, fulfillment in Christ and his kingdom that is his church. So instead of Matthew 12 proving that Christ abolished the Sabbath in all senses, it actually argues that he upheld it and sought to correct the Pharisees' faulty interpretation. I think that's what's going on there. The same Scottish Presbyterian says, Jesus grasped, as usual, the real spirit of the institution. For, we are to remember, he's explaining the law of the Sabbath as it then stood, not superseding it by another law, his own. That's really important. Jesus wasn't a neo-Nomian. What in the world does that mean? Neo, new, nomian, namas, law. Jesus isn't a neo nomian ah, The old law is from Moses. It's bad. It's carnal. It's earthly. I'll give you a new one. You've heard that it was said. Moses said this, but I'm upping it. I'm, I'm really speaking about holy law now. The people hold that view of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, you know. And it's became very popular in the last 20 or 50, 40 or 50 years. They needed to read more from the history of the church because Francis Turton destroys that view of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is a neonomian, a new law giver. No, he was upholding law as it then stood. Somebody else was wrong about the law of God. Now, that phrase, that statement, uh, therefore, the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath, in its context, in Matthew 12, and Mark 2, which I'll show you next week, is mind-blowing to understand correctly, mind-blowing in the good way. And so I'll, I'll, I'll get back to that next week. But this objection that somehow, way, Jesus in this passage and other passages is, um, is doing away with Sabbath in all senses, it assumes that the Sabbath in all senses was temporary old covenant ceremonial law. But the statement in Mark, Mark 2 grounds it not in Moses, but in creation. The Sabbath was made for man and not man the Sabbath. Remember that? Not the Sabbath was made and given exclusively to the Jewish nation under the Older Mosaic Covenant. It had a historical beginning and it has a historical ending right now. It's ceremonial and temporary in all senses. That's not what our Lord's words entail. if Jesus considered the Sabbath as absolutely ceremonial and exclusive to the Mosaic Covenant alone, and therefore temporary, you would think that he would treat it like he did other temporary institutions. Now, I quoted a 19th century Scottish Presbyterian. Now we have 20th century Anglicans. You read Anglicans? Sure. Uh, But part of this is to show you this isn't like a rich Barcellus thing, okay? It's just your own view. These are Anglicans. But if Jesus regarded the Sabbath as purely ceremonial and purely temporary, it is remarkable that he gives so much attention to it in his teaching, and also that in all he teaches about it He never mentions its temporary character. This is even more remarkable when one remembers that that he emphasizes the temporary character of other parts of the Old Testament ceremonial, the laws of purity in Mark 7 and Luke 11, and the temple with its sacrifices in Mark 13 and John 4. By contrast, he seems to speak of the Sabbath as one of the unchanging ordinances for all mankind. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So this divine institution of Sabbath is for man, not against him, right? It is not to be viewed as God taking something from us. God took the Lord's day from me? Bummer. Just that It is just the opposite, right? It is to be viewed as God giving something to us. If that's a good line, I borrowed it from one of the, uh, the the Bruce Ray book. I was just flipping through the book again yesterday, and I noticed, oh, I put a little star there, or I underlined something. What is that? We shouldn't view the Lord's day as God taking something from us, but God giving something to us, the liberty of throwing off our normal labors and engaging in something we normally don't because we're creatures on the earth and we have Worldly stuff to do that is stuff in common with other creatures who are created in the image of God. We have to have clothes and food and and we should, or somebody should for you, mow the lawn and tend to your home and your belongings and all those things, right? The, the Lord's Day is God saying, I, I'm giving you time away from that. Now, I get emergency circumstances, a pipe blows in your house on Sunday afternoon you fix it or you call somebody to fix it so not a normal circumstance I get that but if you view it that way I think it for me it's been wonderful not uh, I gotta do that but I get to you mean I gotta I gotta well yeah you gotta but you get (laughs) it you see the difference there it's not something God takes from you. It's something God gives you. He gives you this gift of, oh, I don't have to worry about it. I'll worry about that tomorrow or, you know, whatever. So I, I, I think that this passage and other passages in the Gospels are clear. A detailed examination of all the passages in the Gospels where Christ discusses the issue of the Sabbath will show that he's, he never predicted its absolute abolition, that is, in all senses, the fourth commandment has served its purposes. There's nothing in, for Christians this side of the cross and glory of Christ to... Uh, there's nothing for them to apply the fourth commandment to. It was a temporary command. You can't get that from Jesus. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. That's what you get from Jesus. It seems to be a creation-based ordinance that is with man for man's duration duration on the earth under its current circumstances. Um, Matter of fact, he argues that way for marriage. From the beginning, it was not so in Matthew 19. You know, the divorce passage in Matthew 19. Jesus goes all the way back to not merely Moses... Moses' law, but he goes back to creation itself. So at least there's one ordinance at creation that Jesus respected and found principles that predated the Mosaic law, the old covenant law. The same goes for labor. By the way, labor is a divine institution grounded in creation itself. And I think a faithful um, reading of the Gospels would say the same thing about that's the way Jesus viewed the Sabbath as one of those divine institutions at creation for us and not against us. Jesus never profaned the Sabbath. In fact, he could not profane it Just think about that. Jesus broke the Sabbath. Um, He could not profane it. And he could not advocate its profanation, its violation, by others without sinning, right? If what he said the disciples did was actually a violation of the law of God... Jesus got the Old Testament wrong. He said what they did constitutes them as blameless and guiltless. But if they were blameful and guilty, Jesus got the Old Testament wrong. But he was born under the law not to profane it. Right? The fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law that was then extant or existing, to profane it or to keep it? To keep it. Because if he doesn't, we ain't got a savior. So if Christ violated the Sabbath, then he sinned and he wouldn't be a suitable savior for others. Instead, he advocated works of necessity, works of mercy. If you want to know the passages, I can give them to you later. And piety. What do you mean by piety? Well, he was on the Sabbath day. He frequented synagogues. He went to public worship. And by his use of the Old Testament, Jesus demonstrated that his attitude toward and conduct on the Sabbath was consistent with lawful Sabbath keeping. In other words... He did not demonstrate his authority by changing what had already been sanctioned as lawful Sabbath-keeping. He didn't change the law. He never violated the Sabbath, he never advocated its violation by others, or prophesied its absolute demise. In fact, as we'll see next week, when he says, the Son, of, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I won't tell you. I'll tell you next week. Okay, I'll tell you. Just a little. That phrase, Son of Man, where does that come from? Daniel 7. What is it speaking about? The incarnate servant of God After his ascension, primarily, during his incarnate ministry, but primarily after his ascension, I won't tell you the rest of it. You'll get it next week when we go to Daniel 7, and his second coming. The The phrase, was son of man, the title is an Old Testament title about the Messiah ruling and reigning. So he says, I have lordship over the Sabbath between my two comings. Which, if you're kind of tracking, you're going, uh, oh. so lordship over the Sabbath, that's a creation institution. God instituted instituted those things. And Jesus is claiming to have lordship over a divine institution of creation. And the answer is, well, yes because he is the incarnate son of God. So he's God. So he can obviously exercise lordship over this creation ordinance that from his own lips is for our good. And if you're tracking, or if you're not... um, Next week, I'll try to tease that out a little more. Now, I'm finished, but I'm not finished. Finished, but not finished. It's, all, it's, a, it's an odd, in one sense, it's almost like a lecture that was delivered today, and I don't want it to remain a lecture. I want it to move our minds and hearts. I want it to be a sermon. Uh, may God turn it into that. But if you followed at least a little, and the better, the more you know both the Old and New Testament, uh, you were able probably to follow more if you don't know the Old and New Testament. So maybe this is an encouragement. If you're just going, man, I don't understand any of this stuff, read your Bibles. It'll help, okay? (laughs) Thank you. Uh, uh, But here's the other thing. Um, Even if you... Didn't track everything. There should have been some things that most, if not all of us, at least a few things, that you did track with. This greater than the temple for the Pharisees, the temple was like it for them. Jesus says, I'm greater than the temple. You put it all, all the teaching of Scripture together. Christ is a fulfillment of that to which the temple looked. Look, to, look forward to. That's a huge statement. And then this lordship, that's a huge one too. Jesus is lord of creation ordinances. Well, yeah, because he's the incarnate son of God. He's lord of the Sabbath. Matter of fact, there's a hymn written in the 18th century. says, Lord of the Sabbath, hear us pray. In this thy house, on this thy day see what he did with house house is an old testament house of god is an old testament concept he's applying that concept in a new situation this side of the cross and glory of christ right he's doing the same thing with lord of lord of the sabbath and he's doing the same thing with the concept of a particular day in the week Listen to this again. Lord of the Sabbath, hear us pray in this thy house, the assembled saints, on this thy day, first day of the week, and own as grateful sacrifice the songs which from thy temple rise. What did he do again? He went to the Old Testament, and he uses the concept of temple and sacrifice, and even the concept of 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 things rising from the earth to be well-pleasing to God. All that's Old Testament stuff, but he's not talking about Jews before the incarnation of Christ, is he? He's talking about Christians, this side of it. Thine earthly Sabbath, Lord, we love. Now watch what he does here. But there's a nobler rest above. To that, our laboring souls aspire with ardent hope and strong desire. That's hymn 322. What wonderful words. But the the hymn writer, he's kind of doing things I've been trying to do in the sermon. Yeah, that stuff's back there. Uh, Yeah, things have changed. But we don't want to absolutize the destruction of the temple, physically and typologically, yes, but there's still some sort of spiritual application, whatever you want to call it, this side of the destruction of the temple, and there's some side of sacrifices of praise from our lips, the book of Hebrews, that's acceptable to God, priestly activities by a priesthood gathered together, uh, worship God acceptably this side of the cross and resurrection of Christ. That's what that hymnal is trying to do. And that's what my sermons have tried to do. And if you didn't get anything of all that, let me tell you this. We're all sinners and you need a savior and Jesus is the only way. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Please um, rivet Anything that was said that is an accurate reflection of the intention of God in the scriptures, rivet that into our heads and hearts. Blow away anything that was not your intended meaning. Blow that away from our memories. Help um, the the new and the old, the newer believers and the, the seasoned saints, to see the grand sweep of your word and to be able to dissect its parts in light of its whole and to see the wonderful sweep of redemptive history centering on Christ, consummated by him uh, at his coming when he'll inaugurate a new heaven and new earth in its ultimate and eschatological sense. Please help us to be... um, good students of your word, and help us now to sing in thankful praise uh, for your grace in us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.